Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 19th, 2015. Tonight I'm going to present Methods of Interpreting Prophecy, Part 2, which I've subtitled at the last minute, An Examination of Matthew Chapter 24. In our last presentation on this topic, I had said that none of the preterists had produced an exegetical commentary proving their position. That is not entirely true. V.S. Harrell supposedly has produced such a commentary titled The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, a book said to number 300 pages. But I can't find it anywhere. So my statement may as well stand. I understand that there are a lot of mainstream Judeo-Christian preterists, or what they call partial preterists, and to me, partial preterists, to one extent or another, are really historicists for the most part. There are other split-view partial preterists that break off those last couple of chapters of Revelation and project them far into the future. They're just quacks, and they're not really much different than the futurists. So to me, the term partial preterist shouldn't exist at all. You're either a preterist, a futurist, or a historicist. Preterists and futurists both reject the hand of God in human history between 70 AD and the present time. Historicists see the revelation of God unfolding throughout history. Well, V.S. Harrell is a preterist who has written an exegetical, exegetical commentary on the revelation. But I can't find it anywhere. This is a man, and I'm going to talk about Harrell for a minute. This is a man who, in one of his own articles, entitled, What is White? And I have a copy of it that I found in a couple of places online. Had referred to himself as God's anointed minister in this generation. So, God's anointed minister in this generation wrote a book on a revelation that supposedly proves the preterist position, and it cannot be found. You would think that God's anointed minister would want to make his work available for anyone to read. I um, knew five or six years ago that, that Harold had a website, but that the website was sealed off to public viewing that you had to have a password to get in. You had to be a special member of the club. I thought the website was gone, but I just learned, because I lost the address, I just learned that the website's still there, and some of our own listeners here at Christagenia do have access to it. But I can't imagine that a man who considers himself God's anointed minister in this generation doesn't want his work available freely on the Internet. Like most Christian identity pastors and teachers who do not have such large egos do have their work available freely 
on the Internet. It's like if you require the Word of God, a password is going to fall down out of the clouds, and you'll be able to get into this website. That's just crazy. There are a lot of harebrained preterist websites on the Internet. One website announces that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, and it makes some rather extraordinary comparisons of the Revelation to peculiar tales from the history of Judea up to 70 AD as proof of its assertions. But then it goes on to compare the thousand years that Satan was locked in the pit, found in Revelation chapter 20, to the period of time, I swear they take themselves seriously, from 70 AD to the Crusades. So, perhaps all prophecy was not fulfilled by 70 AD, where it is not convenient to their interpretation. They claim that Christ returned in the form of, get this, Jesus, the son of Ananus. Ananus, from the family of the Sadducees that Christ wouldn't even talk to. They claim that Christ returned in the form of Jesus, the son of Ananus, a man who is not a Christian, who is described in Book 6 of Flavius's, Flavius Josephus' Wars of the Judeans. There it is said that, and, and I'm referring to Josephus, not to these clacks on his website. There it is said that he traveled about Jerusalem announcing woe to the city. According to Josephus, he did this for seven years and five months. And as he was going around upon the wall, he cried out with his utmost force, woe, woe, woe to the city again and to the people and to the holy house which Christians would not have considered the temple to be. After the Passion of the Christ, they knew better. And just as he added the last, woe, woe to myself also, there came a stone out of one of the engines and smote him and killed him immediately. And as he was uttering the very same presages, he gave up the ghost. That was Jesus, the son of Ananus, according to Flavius Josephus. So much for Jesus Christ being the immortal God, at least according to the preterist quacks on that website. I might mention the name of the site a little later. There is another website called Preterist Archive, but there they also include what they call partial preterists, a term which we would reject, and therefore they also have historicist material. Harold and his book are mentioned there, but there is no link, and the book cannot be found otherwise. I would not use material from these other websites to address Herald because that just wouldn't be fair. It cannot be imagined that their preterist views are in common. I would rather address Herald himself, but unfortunately that may have to wait. I would rather address Herald himself because even though V.S. Herald is not an identity Christian, 
And even though his work is rather obscure, at one time, several years ago, he was indeed associated with many identity Christians before he went his own way. And his profession concerning preterism has affected more identity Christians, so far as I could tell, than any of the mainstream preterists, most of whom are also universalists. V.S. Harrell is a Christian separatist who rejects the phrase Christian identity. I would not hate him for that alone. And I wouldn't even argue over the labels here. There are a lot of other things which he says that I would very much agree with. He appropriately rejects the King James-only crowd. He rejects the necessity for rituals such as water baptism. He rejects the idea that a bastard or any non-white, and to us, of course, the terms are synonymous, he rejects the idea that any of them could possibly be a Christian. All of these things are good and agreeable to us. Not everything Harold says, however, is agreeable to us. While he upholds God's laws when it comes to race mixing and to the position of women in society and things like that, he wrongly rejects God's laws when it comes to the eating of swine and certain other things. He considers the articulation of the Tetragrammaton to be a delusion claiming it started with a 20th century Jew. But that is a lie, since it can be clearly attested in historical writings over the first few Christian centuries. We have other points of disagreement, but we are not going to belabor them all, belabor them all here. Rather, our objective is to discuss praetorism. Speaking of the prophets, Harold once wrote, and this is from one of his own articles, those of you who think that the Jews believe the Old Testament need to wake up to the truth. And that, of course, is also good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul of Tarsus explained why the Old Testament was only for Christians and why it is not a Jewish book at all. Because those who reject Christ cannot possibly understand any of it, and it was never for them. The law was only given to Israel. Of course, the Jews prove that to be true every time they open their mouths, that they don't believe the Old Testament or the New, of course. But then Harold drives off a cliff where he said, if they believed the Old Testament, they would believe in Jesus Christ. Now that part's okay. Because all of the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled with his first coming. And that's simply not true. And all the prophecies of the New Testament were fulfilled, get this, in his second coming which began on the day of Pentecost and culminated in the destruction of the Jewish economy in 70 AD. Now, certainly, the spirit of the day of Pentecost was the comforter which was promised to come to the apostles to keep them until his return. 
But the spirit of the day of Pentecost was not his return. Christ said, where I go, you cannot come, but you will come later. And then the same Christ said in the same chapter, John chapter 14, that I will send, I will ask the Father, and he will send to you a comforter. And then he reveals the nature of the comforter, where he says, and the nature of himself, where he says, I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. So the spirit of Pentecost is not the return of Christ. The spirit of Pentecost is the promised comforter to keep the faithful until the return of Christ. That's a huge difference. Now, certainly many of the prophecies of the Old Testament were indeed fulfilled by the time of the first coming of Christ. But if all of those prophecies were fulfilled, then the Word of God has absolutely no efficacy in the real world, and we should all just go about our business. That is because there are many other things promised in the Old Testament which certainly had not been fulfilled by that time. So if we can demonstrate in any particular way that Harold's statement is not true in some degree, then none of it is true and it all needs to be reconsidered. We do know as we see it reflected here in Harold's words, that he also believed the second coming of Christ to have happened in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem. With that, as Harold also asserted, the revelation of Yahshua Christ given to the Apostle John was also fulfilled. And I've seen that in other of Harold's writings, where Harold insists on an early date for the authoring of the revelation at least several years before 60 AD, so that he can then claim that it was all fulfilled by 70 AD. Wow. Why give this a revelation if before it can ever be published and disseminated, it's all fulfilled? Books were written very slowly and spread very slowly abroad in those days. Why give us a revelation if it's all over a few years later? So how do we address this issue of preterism in Christian identity if, for the time being, we cannot access the work of the man who seems to be most responsible for it? And that's the problem with V.S. Harrell. He's had a great amount of influence over identity Christians in this area. What we shall do is address the premise. If the premise can be shown to be wrong, then the entire hypothesis is also wrong. It's that simple. The premise is this. Summed up from the correspondence of Christian identity preterists, which I've seen both recently and in a remoter past. That because Peter said that the end of all things is at hand, and the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, 
And also because Christ had said that verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Words found in the King James Version at Matthew 24:34. Then the coming of the Son of Man, mentioned several other times in that same discourse which Christ gave in Matthew chapter 24, must be fulfilled. And for that reason, must all biblical prophecy be fulfilled. Because Christ had said that all things could be fulfilled. Starting with that premise, they insist on interpreting all scripture in that manner. Yet Christ was speaking in a limited context, as we shall demonstrate. And Peter was not referring to the temple in Jerusalem when he said, house of God. Judgment begins at the house of God. Rather, he was writing from Babylon and speaking of the children of Israel in general, very few of whom were in Judea or Jerusalem. It was the teaching of Christ, and all of the apostles had repeated it later, that God doesn't dwell in a house made with hands. Where Peter had been said, and if it began first at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? Peter's statement proves the point. Judgment begins at the house of God. And if it begin first at us, meaning the people of Israel, none of whom are in Jerusalem, hardly, not by this time, most of whom are in Europe, or Eurasia, or Northern Africa, or Mesopotamia, where the children of Israel were distributed. None of them are in Anatolia. None of them, hardly, are in Jerusalem. Judgment begins at the house of God, not the temple in Jerusalem. And if it began first at us, house of God means the family of God, not the temple in Jerusalem. Simple-minded adults would believe that. Where Peter had then said, and if it began first at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? That last statement, only there could he possibly be referring to the enemies of Christ. But he fully inferred that judgment begins with the children of Israel and not with the enemies of Christ in Jerusalem. Therefore, Peter must have been speaking in regards to a judgment and to an end much greater than that which concerned Jerusalem in 70 AD, where Peter said that the end of all things is at hand. He was really only teaching the imminent return of Yahshua Christ, as Christ himself told his disciples many times that they would not know at what hour he would return, and that therefore they must always expect him. For that reason, Paul had also rather consistently taught that the day of the return of Christ and the day of the judgment and the wrath of Yahweh were forthcoming immediately. 
As we had already explained in our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, many critics of Christianity claim that the apostles are at fault for teaching that the return of Christ was imminent. And since it has not yet happened, according to <laughs> normal people, according to non-traitorists, and since it has not yet happened, that the apostles were somehow wrong and Christianity is therefore discredited. Foreseeing this very attitude, the apostle Peter had written, the second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, 2 Peter chapter 3, in both which I stir up your pure minds by a way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come, meaning in the future, in the last days, so the last days of the future, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So with this, we see that while Peter taught that the end of all things is at hand, he nevertheless also held out the possibility that it could still be quite some time before the end of all things actually happened. The same Peter said that a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Where Christ had said, this generation shall not pass till all these things be accomplished. We interpret the word for generation as race. The Greek word is genea. Some of our critics attempt to make a distinction between genea and genos stating that genos more properly means race, and genea more properly means generation. Bull. That distinction is only valid in their own minds, in their own imaginations. Perusing the Liddell and Scott definitions, which I will link with the notes to this podcast, for genea and genos, they're available online one may see that both words primarily mean race, stock, family, race. And either word was also used to describe the members of a race at any given time, which to us are a generation, even though today the meaning of that is diluted to mean a generation of all races at any given time, which is just plain Jewish. However, here we shall also examine more closely what Christ had said in the passage in question, and we hope to demonstrate that he certainly did not mean to indicate that all biblical prophecy would be fulfilled by the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. If that were true, we would have heaven because we wouldn't have had a Jew for the last 2,000 years, almost, 1935, I guess. 45. We had also explained in our recent Ephesians presentation that Christ had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. 
But that does not mean that all prophecy, New Testament and old, was fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Rather, Christ had said that these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled in reference to Jerusalem because if Jerusalem was not destroyed after the Messiah was cut off, as it is written in Daniel chapter 9, then all things written would never be fulfilled because that one thing would still be hanging there. So that does not mean that there were not other things written which concerned events apart from the advent of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem prophesied by Daniel. If we examine all the words of the prophets, there are many things which are still not fulfilled and other things which certainly seem to have been fulfilled since the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll give you one thing which certainly hasn't been fulfilled, where Yahweh promised the children of Israel twice in Jeremiah that he would make a full end of all the nations where they were scattered. There are non-Israel nations around today, and there are Israelites somewhere in practically every one of them. So all those nations should be gone if all things were fulfilled. We will repeat an analogy which we made last week. When a man plans a 2,000-mile journey and gets halfway there, he may say, I must get on to the next stop so that I can complete my journey. Arriving at the next stop may not be the completion of the journey, but the journey could not be completed without arriving at the next stop. So we have the same situation with Scripture. We have seen the advent of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem so that all things written in the prophets may be fulfilled. But that doesn't complete the journey. There are other things which are written in the prophets which have obviously not yet happened. So these things must still await us. We also explain that Paul of Tarsus had written to the Romans in chapter 16 of his epistle to them, that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Paul wrote that epistle 13 years before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman legions. Hundreds of thousands of Edomite Jews were destroyed. In fact, according to Josephus, the total casualties, and they weren't all Edomites, but the total casualties of the war were 1.1 million people. Although Tacitus, the Roman historian, cuts the figure in half, approximately. I think he says about 500,000. I didn't look it up, but it's there. So Paul certainly understood Daniel chapter 9. But Paul writing to the Ephesians around 61 AD, had warned them to take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day. Now, Ephesus was well out of the scope of the battles between the Judeans and the Romans. So Paul must have been talking about some other evil day and not the one that he himself saw forthcoming in Jerusalem. 
Furthermore, Paul had written to the Thessalonians in what is assuredly the second earliest of his surviving epistles. The two epistles to the Thessalonians can be shown to be his earliest epistles. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, from verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God, I'm reading the King James Version, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, and here's the pertinent part, for which you also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. In other words, for God to recompense, rest with the apostles to those Christians who are troubled by those who trouble Christians. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished, them that trouble you, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. In that day, referring to the punishment with everlasting destruction. So Paul spoke of a promised day of vengeance, where Christ would in flaming fire take vengeance upon all those who troubled the Christians at Thessalonica. Here Paul says that they would be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Does this describe what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD? Because there were Jews all over the Roman Empire that were not slain in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And if it does, why then are Christians still being persecuted after 70 AD? It is quite clear in history that there were many persecutions and martyrdoms of Christians long after 70 AD. And most of those persecutions occurred after 70 AD, long after 70 AD. Christian writers such as Tertullian attributed those persecutions to the treachery of the Jews, not the Jews that died in the judgment of Christ on Jerusalem, but other Jews who were just as much Edomite Jews as those who died in Jerusalem, who were instigating the Romans to persecute Christians. In Revelation chapter 6, we read, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for yet a little season until, not until they're avenged, until their fellow servants and also their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. In other words, after the writing of the Revelation, we're expecting the killing of more Christians at the hands of the enemies of Christ. If the vengeance described for the Thessalonians by Paul was completed by 70 AD, and if the vengeance awaited by the souls who were killed for Christ described in Revelation was completed by 70 AD, then there should have been no Christian martyrs after 70 AD or Paul's words to the Thessalonians that you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed are a lie because they had no rest after 70 AD. And the revelation promises no further vengeance. For all those who died for Christ after 70 A.D., if it was all fulfilled by 70 A.D. Wow, preterists are just stuck on stupid. Still being persecuted for Christ after 70 A.D., they who are troubled by his enemies certainly have no promise of rest, as Paul had described. So why should we even be Christians if the promises of God are finished in 70 AD. It can be established in recent history that it is the same enemies of Christ, those Edomite Jews who had persecuted white Christians most recently in the destruction of Imperial Russia. And then again, in the mass starvations in the Ukraine, and again in the decimation of Christian Germany. Today they rule over every Christian nation and every bastard nation as well. And if there's no prophecy past 70 AD, there's no hope that these Jew bastards are ever going to be overcome. None whatsoever. If all prophecy is fulfilled by 70 AD, the words of Obadiah must be a lie, where it says that there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. The truth is that the enemies of Christ, the Edomite Jews, were certainly not driven to extinction in 70 AD, and many more of them are among us today than we've ever seen. Therefore, we still await the fulfillment of those words of Obadiah, and we still await the punishment with everlasting destruction of the enemies of Christ once and for all, those who were troubling the Christians at Thessalonica. On that account, 
identity. Christians should not be fooled by the preterists. We had also said in our last presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians that it was the same Paul who in 57 AD had told the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, who had also told the Ephesians in 60 or 61 AD that for us the struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against realms, plural, not one in Jerusalem, plural, against authorities, plural, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. And then he beckons them by saying, because of this, take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day, even to stand all things being accomplished. With this, it is clear that Paul had foreseen a long, ongoing process where Christians must struggle against evil until the coming of some other evil day not related to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because what happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD had no bearing whatsoever on the Ephesians, and therefore, what Paul spoke about must have been well beyond 70 AD, because we're dealing with realms, plural, authorities, plural. Likewise, the same Paul who in 57 AD had told the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, he had also warned the Romans themselves in chapter 2 of his epistle to them that they would not escape the judgment of God, but speaking about the pagans in Rome. After the hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up to thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Writing to the Corinthians. Now that didn't happen in 70 AD in Rome. Writing to the Corinthians, he said, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you under the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then later, writing to the same Corinthians, he said, concerning a particular sinner, to deliver such a one under Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That certainly isn't referring to 70 AD. 
That same Paul admonished the Philippians, likewise, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till or until the day of Christ. The day of the Lord, or day of Christ, of which Paul speaks in these passages. The evil day wherein he prays that the Ephesians are able to stand, and for which the Romans should not store up wrath against themselves, and for which the Corinthians must be blameless, could not have been in Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's ridiculous. There must be some other day of wrath, which Paul had in mind, after 70 AD, for it to give rest to the Christian martyrs and affect the Thessalonians, Romans, Corinthians, and Philippians as well. These are just examples. We can get 100, 200 scriptures just like this. There are many other scriptures in both Old Testament and New, which the imaginations of the preterists set at naught. They set the word of God at naught. They make the apostles of God out to be blithering idiots. In reality, the preterists are blithering idiots. There is much confusion among the preterists because they, like many Judaized Christians, do not seem to distinguish between the promises which are made to a restored Israel in this world under Christ and the promises to the Adamic race as a whole after the final day of judgment at the end of the age. One of the places that is manifest is in their thinking concerning Isaiah chapter 65. One preterist website, the one that I didn't really want to mention at the beginning of this conversation, one preterist website, which I disdain to mention for various reasons, but which calls itself Revelation Revolution, and it actually appears in paid advertising on Google so they have some money to support their garbage. This website goes so far as to deny the resurrection of the dead and eternal life because in Isaiah chapter 65, it says, There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man, that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Don't take this verse literally and project it to the resurrection. That's ridiculous. Read Isaiah. Read Isaiah 65 a little more carefully do that. What they do not realize is that Isaiah chapter 65 is not prophesying a post-resurrection scenario. Rather, Isaiah 65 is prophesying a new heavens 
and a new earth, as an allegory for Christian governance under the laws of God, a renewed society. That's the way the terms heaven and earth were used from the times of the Sumerian inscriptions. The child who dies at 100 years old is not an infant. It's not a little baby in a crib. That's nuts or a little toddler. Rather, the child is an Israelite who is innocent-minded. As Paul had admonished in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, brethren, being not children in understanding, howbeit in malice, Be children. Malice is bad doing. In malice, be children. But in understanding, be met. That is the same analogy. which Christ used in Mark chapter 10, where he said, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. For that same reason, in his epistles, the Apostle John addressed his readers as little children. For instance, where he closes his second epistle by saying, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This is perfectly clear, where in Isaiah... The child of Isaiah, 65 verse 20, is contrasted to the sinner, not to an elder person, to a sinner, and they're both 100 years old. Come on, you're going to believe that's a baby. Is that really talking about a baby? Preterists are idiots. I don't want to sound so condescending, but this is so damned obvious. If you actually knew your scripture, you'd know that the child dying at 100 years old is an innocent person, innocent as to sin. The child being contrasted to a sinner. So the child is an allegory for one who is free from sin or who at least has a contrite and humble heart towards God and his law. So there is no conflict at all between the belief in resurrection and the state of a restored Israelite in the earthly kingdom of Christ, who should be as a child concerning sin. In other words, 
who should be innocent concerning sin. Preterists simply do not understand their scriptures as well as they think they understand them. In fact, Paul of Tarsus himself had scoffed at those who believed that the resurrection had already happened, which is what Preterists assert. When he wrote his second epistle to Timothy, Paul wrote that epistle while he was under arrest in Rome ostensibly in 61 AD, maybe in 62, or in very late 60, but around there. We have established that this epistle was written shortly after Paul had written the epistle to the Ephesians, and also shortly after his first defense of Christianity before the Emperor Nero in Rome. And Paul's comments in 2 Timothy chapter 4 prove that. In chapter 2 of that epistle, Paul had told Timothy, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as does a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. If the resurrection had not already happened by 61 AD, how can we imagine that it happened by 70 AD? When the hell is it? Give me the date for the resurrection between 61 AD and 70 AD. In his epistle to the Philippians, written after 2 Timothy, Paul expressed his own hope in chapter 3, where he said, If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. We have discussed the praetorist premise concerning Peter's statement that the end of all things is at hand. Now we shall discuss the other preterist premise we mentioned, where they imagine all prophecy to be fulfilled by 70 AD, chiefly because of the words of Joshua Christ, which are found in Matthew 24, verse 34, where he said, Verily I say unto you, this generation, in the King James Version, shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Along with his having mentioned several times the coming of the Son of Man. This is the long discourse of Christ prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and parallel passages are found in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. Some of what follows we have already presented here in our recent Ephesians presentation. We shall discuss it here again and endeavor to discuss it much more fully. In Matthew chapter 24, we see that after Christ foretold of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the apostles had asked him three questions. Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming 
and of the end of the world. The first question, that's of course from the King James Version. The first question was in reference to what Christ had said about the temple. The other two questions may have been related to the first in the minds of the apostles, but they were not necessarily related at all. The other apostles who recorded this exchange, Luke and Mark, only record two of the questions. However, it is plainly evident that these three separate records of the discourse of Christ in the Mount of Olives, which is one fact omitted by Luke, that it occurred in the Mount of Olives, predicting the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, do not conflict with one another. Rather, they augment one another. Because since each of the different witnesses recorded different things, which they or their sources recalled from memory, each had slightly different recollections of the many things which were said. For that reason, we are fortunate to have three records. It's like taking three different pictures of the same object at different angles, which gives us a much better understanding of the complete form of the object. It's real simple. So Christ goes into a long discourse answering all three questions. But that does not mean that all three of the events inquired of would necessarily happen at the same time. As the answers are recorded, it is also evident that Christ did not sort them out for us. As it is written in Matthew chapter 13, all things spoke Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable he spoke not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. The following two paragraphs were written for our November 2012 presentation of Luke chapter 21, which contains Luke's slightly different account of what Christ had said in Matthew chapter 14. We had presented Luke 21.7 where it says, Then they questioned him, saying, Teacher, so when shall these things be, and what is the sign when these things are going to come? With this, we had explained the alternate reading of the passage as it is found in Matthew chapter 24, and in part we said, The question, tell us, when shall these things be, was in reference to the statements of Christ concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, which he had just forewarned. The question, what is the sign of your coming, was in reference to the ultimate return of the Christ, and the additional question not recorded by either Mark or Luke, but recorded by Matthew, was, and of the consummation of the age. In reference to Christ's many statements which mention the end of the age, or world, as the King James Version has it, such as Matthew 13.40, and the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Christ says, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, 
Thusly it shall be at the consummation of the age. In fact, the enemies of Christ in Matthew chapter 24 are not gathered and burned in a fire. Rather, they are taken captive into all nations. So the Praetorist view on that point alone fails. Praetorism fails miserably. Mark received his gospel from Peter. Luke received his gospel from other eyewitnesses as he himself attested in the opening verses of the gospel. It may well be that neither of their witnesses understood the full impact of the question, nor felt it important enough to record it all. However, Matthew did record it all. It may also be perceived that the meaning of the final two questions concerning the sign of his coming and of the consummation of the age may have been considered one and the same in the eyes of the other witnesses, and therefore only Matthew, who was actually there, the only one who was actually there, took care to record it fully. Mark may have been there. We can't be sure of that. Luke certainly was not there. We can be sure of that. The apostles could not have known that the answers to these questions would describe separate events, which would occur many years apart from each other. They imagined the destruction of Jerusalem to mark the end of the age and the return of Christ. Many Christian praetorists hold that same errant conclusion today. In fact, so do many futurists who esteem the contemporary sewer in Palestine to be the Jerusalem of prophecy, when in fact Jeremiah told us that the old city would be forever destroyed as a broken bottle could not be put back together in Jeremiah chapter 19. Christ did not clarify the matter for us, by dividing his answers so that they may correspond to the different questions which were asked. Rather, he gave one long discourse in a single answer to all three questions. It is a challenge for us to sort it out. And it must be said that none of us are going to be able to do so with absolute clarity, not until it's all over. So, as it is recorded in Matthew, getting back to my current remarks, getting out of 2012. So, as it is recorded in Matthew, Christ goes into a long discourse, answering all three of the questions which the apostles had in response to his statement concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. He begins by saying, Watch, lest anyone should deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they shall be deceived many, and you are going to hear of wars and reports of wars. See that you are not troubled, for it needs to happen, but not yet is the end, for nation shall arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these things are the beginning of travails or of sorrows.
I'm reading this. The segments of Matthew, which I read here, will be from the Christogenia New Testament. Even if these, came, these things had happened between 32 and 70 AD, even if they happened, they are only the beginning of sorrows. However, none of the historic events of the Roman Empire fit these circumstances at all. So Christ must be referring to a more remote time. And we will get more on that later. We shall read the corresponding passage from Mark 13. And when you shall hear of wars, from the King James Version, and when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. So how long, how much time do we have between 30 A.D. and 70 A.D.? For nation shall rise against nation, but the end shall not be yet. And kingdom against kingdom, but the end shall not be yet. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, but the end shall not be yet. And there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows, because the end shall not be yet. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to the councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings, plural, for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. This passage indicates a much greater scope than anything which had happened up to 70 A.D. The first historic record of any apostle of Christ, show it to me in the scripture, the first historic record of any apostle of Christ appearing before a king was the defense of Paul before Nero, or perhaps the defense of Paul before Agrippa II. Herod Agrippa II in Caesarea. Now that occurred in 59 AD. Paul before Nero occurred in 62 AD. The minor wars which Rome had in this period could not qualify as nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Not at all. In fact, off the top of my head, I could say that I only know that Rome was at war during this period with Claudius's conquest against Britain, which was really empire against enclave, or, or Britain was... It was nothing compared to the Roman Empire and the Judean Rebellion, which began in 65. They were the only major troubles that Rome had, so far as I've ever read, during this period. External troubles with other nations or other kingdoms. From Matthew chapter 24, Christ continues by saying, then they shall hand you over 
into the tribulation, and they shall kill you into tribulation. I'm sorry. There's no article there. And they shall kill you, and you shall be hated by all of the heathens on account of my name. That may have been translated, all of the nations. And then many shall be entrapped, and they shall betray one another and hate one another. Now, there were persecutions of Christians before 70 AD under Claudius and under Nero, as well as those unofficial persecutions in Judea. But there were many more and greater persecutions in the centuries to follow. And even long after that, by the, by the Turks and the Arabs, by the Roman Church in the Middle Ages, John Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a whole history of Christian martyrs in Germany, in England, in the Middle Ages. Christians were still being persecuted. Then we read, And many false prophets shall arise, and they shall deceive many. And for reason that lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many shall grow cold that lawlessness is multiplied. Lawlessness, the breaking of the law, the love of many. Christ isn't talking about the Edomite bastards in Jerusalem. He's talking about his own people. But he who endures unto the end, he shall be preserved. So the Edomite bastard in Jerusalem who is being destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, if he endures unto the end, he has a promise of preservation from Christ. Okay. Preterists are smart. And this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations, and then shall the end come. Now, we can point to a few instances of false prophets in the book of Acts. But the deception of later times is much greater than anything which happened in the first century. And the scope of the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations is much greater than first century Judea. In fact, the book of Daniel in chapter 2 and elsewhere, defines the whole earth as wheresoever the children of men dwell. The phrase, all the nations, must at least refer to all of the nations descended from Israel, and there should be no doubt that only a very few of them had even heard the gospel of Christ by 70 A.D. The proof to that is in the book of Acts itself all the way up there in Acts chapter 19. What's going on in Acts 19? I'll tell you what's going on. It's 52 AD in Acts 19 when Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos. And what does the book of Acts say? That he knew only the baptism of John. 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, Apollos, who's described as a pious man and learned in the scriptures, knew only the baptism of John. Paul, 
coming into Ephesus knew or, or had met several other Judeans and basically met the same circumstances. Now, if people in Ephesus who were Judeans learned in the scriptures like Apollos, after 20 years, had not heard the gospel of Christ. What makes these praetorists think that the, all the nations would hear the gospel of Christ before the time of the end, if the end was in 70 AD, only 18 years later than Apollos? Wow. Preterists are stupid. Reading from Matthew twenty four fifteen. Therefore, when you should see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, he reading must understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee into the mountains. He upon the housetop must not go down to take things from his house. And he in the field must not turn back to take his garment. But woe to those being pregnant and those with infants in those days. And you must pray that your flight should not be in winter nor on the Sabbath. For at that time there shall be great tribulation, such as has not happened from the beginning of the society until now, nor by any means should happen. And unless those days would be shortened, there would not be any flesh saved. But on account of the elect shall those days be shortened. We are not going to absorb ourselves with a discussion of the abomination of desolation, except to say that it certainly can refer to what was happening in Jerusalem in its last days. But the phrase also has a meaning which transcends that interpretation. What we must imagine is whether the destruction which came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD actually exceeded every other war of antiquity. And that is quite arguable. But Christ also said nor by any means should happen. Where the King James Version writes, nor ever shall be. While the Roman war in Judea perhaps cost perhaps a million or so lives by the highest estimates, several recent wars in our own time have each cost tens of millions of lives. The Second World War, 56 million, perhaps. The First World War, the Bolshevik Revolution, there's another 50 million or better. The starvation in the Ukraine. Ten times the people that died in Jerusalem and Judea died when the Jew bastards in the Ukraine starved the Ukraine. Continuing from Matthew 24. At that time, if anyone should say to you, 
look, here is the Christ. Or there, do not believe it. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall present great signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, the preterists. I'm sorry, even the elect. Behold, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they should say to you, look, he is in the desert, you must not depart. Look in the treasury. Do not believe it. Look, he is Titus. Don't believe that either. These verses inform us that the Son of Man is not a man walking the earth. Although the preterists insist that this passage describes the coming of Titus to destroy Jerusalem. From Acts chapter 1, we see the following. So then, they who were gathered asked him, saying, Prince, then at this time shall you restore the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, It is not yours to know the times or the seasons which the Father has placed in his own authority. Rather, you shall receive power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria unto the end of the earth. And speaking these things, upon their watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing into the heaven upon its going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood by them. And they said, Men, Galileans, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yahshua, who is taken up from you into the heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which you have beheld him going into the heaven. So the scripture teaches that the same Christ when he does return, shall come in the same manner as when he departed after his resurrection, ostensibly in the year 32 AD. Upon his return, there was a promise to gather his people, which has not yet happened. Many other promises are associated with this same event, and neither have they happened. Here we also see that while the Praetorists insist that the kingdom of Yahweh was restored to the children of Israel in 70 AD, in 32 AD, Christ did not indicate that at all. If he had indicated that in his discourse, which they had all heard a short time before, this discourse of Matthew chapter 24, and which is recorded in three Gospels, why did he not have them recollect these words here? Why would he tell them that it was not theirs to know the time when that would happen? Praetorism is actually in conflict with many of the words of Christ and the apostles. Reading from Matthew twenty-four twenty-seven, For just as lightning comes out from the east and appears so far as the west, thusly shall the coming of the Son of Man, thusly shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse may be, there the eagle shall be gathered. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heavens and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. The same illustration is given 
in the Revelation, speaking of the fall of Rome. And that the time, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and much effulgence. And he shall send his messengers with a great trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from out of the four winds, from the ends of the heavens under the extremities of them. Here we must ask, if all the tribes of the earth mourned when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, we must also ask whether, by that same time, Christ had gathered together his elect from out of the four winds. It took a thousand years to bring the gospel of Christ to all of the tribes of Israel. And certainly, not one of them were mourning in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Paul would have loved to see the day that Satan was crushed under the feet of the Romans. They sure as hell wouldn't have mourned. And the other apostles were accused by the Jews, as we may read in Acts chapter 6 of Stephen, for despising the temple, for wanting to destroy the temple. It's right at the end of Acts chapter 6. So evidently Christians had no care for the temple or for Jerusalem. Stephen must have repeated the words of Christ. While the order of the statements in Matthew 24 cannot be precisely correlated with the account as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, we are about to see the reference to the fig tree here in Matthew. So we will stop at this point, because it is at this point, just before the reference to the fig tree in Luke's version, that we see this following description of the destruction of Jerusalem, which does not appear in the, account, appear in the accounts as they are recorded in Matthew or in Mark. But when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, Luke 21, verse 20. Then you know that her desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee into the mountains, and those in the midst of her must leave the land, and those in the countryside must not enter into her, because these are the days of vengeance by which all the things written are to be fulfilled. Woe to those having conceived and to those with sucklings in those days. For there shall be great violence upon the earth and wrath for this people. Now, although I do believe, and this is a personal belief, I wouldn't force it on anyone. Although I do believe that this prophecy has multiple fulfillments because it pertains to both the time of the end and the destruction of Jerusalem. Irrespective of that, Luke's version makes it clear that much of Christ's original discourse does indeed pertain to the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. 
But that does not mean that it is limited to the destruction of that old city, Jerusalem. As we have previously stated, this vengeance against Jerusalem is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. And if it did not happen as Daniel prophesied it, then all things written could not be fulfilled. Even if there are other things written concerning other matters which had not yet been fulfilled, so we cannot interpret the passage which says, by, all, by which all the things written are to be fulfilled, to mean that when this event occurs, everything which was written in the prophets was fulfilled. In that same manner, I'm sorry, in that same chapter of Luke, it speaks of the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, where it says in verse 24, the verse following the place where we just left off, and they shall fall, speaking of the inhabitants of ancient Jerusalem, there's no doubt, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations until the times of the nations be fulfilled. Now we may read the word nations there as Gentiles, as the King James Version has it, so in 70 AD, the times of the Gentiles are not fulfilled, but rather the enemies of Christ would be led away captive into all nations until the times of the nations are fulfilled. That alone proves that there is other prophecy awaiting fulfillment after these events of 70 A.D. The word Gentiles is more properly nations, since here in this passage, it is the same Greek word which is translated as both nations and Gentiles in the King James Version. So we see Christ himself speak of both the ongoing judgment of his enemies and the future fulfillment of the times of the nations following the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So it is foolish to think that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, seeing that there is a time for the fulfillment of the nations after the enemies of Christ are led away captive into all nations, and that those enemies still exist among those nations during that period of time. It should be quite clear to any identity Christian that these are the wheat and the tares, and that we still await the removal of the tares. And that is true even if you don't want to, if you reject the interpretation of this section as having more than one application, at least in part, even if you don't want to do that, and you don't have to, there is no doubt the way that Luke wrote this prophecy that there is a time of the nations that must be fulfilled after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and that the enemies of Christ, or at least a great number of them, those who were not put to the sword, would be led away captive and dwell in those nations 
until the time when those nations are fulfilled. How could you imagine that that prophecy also has to be fulfilled by 70 A.D.? That is awfully contradictory in the face of the plain words of Christ. It should be clear to any identity Christian that these enemies still exist among those nations during this time, so the time of the nations is not yet fulfilled, and that these are the wheat and the tares, and we still await the removal of the tares. So there's some prophecy that is not yet fulfilled, not even today, there are several things in Old Testament prophecy which the phrase times of the Gentiles may refer to. Christ did not tell us explicitly. Perhaps one day we will treat this topic fully. However, for now, we shall cite Daniel chapter 12, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand, and his left hand unto heaven, and swore by him that lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things, meaning all the things which Daniel had written in that section of his prophecy, all these things shall be finished. Now, this may not relate directly to the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, but the identity Christian should know that the promises to Abraham and the patriarchs that they should become many nations, those promises were accomplished after the children of Israel were scattered, and they are the Gentiles of the missions and the epistles of the Apostle Paul, although Paul himself, had only reached a fraction of them. So the words of Christ, as they were recorded by Luke, demonstrate for us that prophecy remains for the children of Israel after 70 A.D. Yet other prophecies, such as Obadiah, promise the eventual and complete and utter destruction of those same enemies, and therefore, once again, the words of Christ in the parables of the wheat and the tares, the net and the sheep and the goats, also inform us to expect these things, and that these things would happen when? Upon the return of Christ. They sure as hell didn't happen in 70 AD. Christ himself said that that's when his enemies would be taken into all nations. Captive. The Jews were indeed captive amongst all nations. They were chattel property through the medieval period in Europe. Chattel property until their emancipation by Napoleon. That's when Satan came out of the pit. That is so clear. How could prayerists ignore it all? 
Therefore, all prophecy could not have been fulfilled by 70 AD, because after 70 AD, we still have the enemies of Christ, and they're just being taken captive into all nations. But they're still his enemies. They're still tares. They're still goats. Of course, there are more tares and goats than just them, but they're still tares and goats. All prophecy cannot be fulfilled until the enemies of Yahweh taken captive into all nations and until they are ultimately rooted out and destroyed. Praetorism denies all of these things and many more. It's exasperating. Continuing with Matthew chapter 24 in verse 32. Now learn from the parable of the fig tree, when already its branches should be tender and would produce leaves, you know that summer is near. Thusly also you, when you should see all these things, know that it is near by the doors. Truly I say to you that by no means should this race escape until all these things should happen. The heaven and the earth shall pass, but my word shall by no means pass. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not the messengers of the heavens, nor the Son, except the Father only. Now, ostensibly, a man, a Hebrew man, didn't speak or teach in public until he was 30, 30 years old. There were men back then that lived to 80 years old, 90 years old. There's a couple of them mentioned, but it's rare. It didn't happen that often. In Numbers chapter 32, we see that the children of Israel were made to wander in the desert for 40 years so that the people that sinned against God would not live to see the land of Canaan. It says there in verse 13, And Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generations that had done evil in the sight of Yahweh was consumed. Now, dating the Passion of Christ to 32 AD, as we do, and with Jerusalem not being destroyed until 70 AD, the preterists expect us to interpret verse 34 as a guarantee that the people who rejected Christ would still be alive after 38 years and most of them must have been at least 30 years old when they rejected him because they were all officers of the temple, Pharisees, public speakers, teachers, leaders of the Judeans. Some of them were probably 100 years old. Most of them were probably 80 and 90 years old if they had lived that long. That must have been some notable generation the Romans conquered a bunch of geriatrics. No, not at all. For that reason, we prefer the term race here. 
in order to translate Ganea. Believing that it refers to the fact that the enemies of God would indeed ultimately face his judgment. We read it as race and not generation because it was practically 40 years. And like the children of the Exodus were kept in a desert 40 years so they would not see the land of Canaan. So while the preterists think that the coming of the Son of Man refers to the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus, at the end of the discourse in Matthew chapter 24, we see the contrary. And it says in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken and the other left. As certain apocryphal literature informs us, the people of Noah's time scoffed at his building an ark, never expecting the sudden destruction to come upon them. That such is true is evident from the comparison here to the man who builds the house who would have watched if he knew the thief was coming. We didn't read that passage yet, but it's coming. But this circumstance is nothing like the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and therefore cannot describe the coming to Jerusalem of Titus. As Luke relates it in his version of this discourse, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies during the siege of Cestius Gallus in 66 AD, and then Cestius withdrew from the city for no apparent reason. Josephus attests that the city very nearly surrendered at that time, before Cestius withdrew. A couple of years later, the Roman armies under Titus besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the city. In the interim, as Josephus attests, many of the better people fled the city for good. Josephus also attests to the vile nature of all those who remained behind, who were for the most part destroyed by Titus's armies. But all of this was only a part of a much broader war where the Judeans had already lost many battles in other places. So unlike the days of Noah, the people of Jerusalem had plenty of warning and had indeed been anticipating the final Roman siege of the city. It was nothing like the days of Noah. Our final passage of Matthew 24, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come, but know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. This cannot describe the Edomite Jews in Jerusalem. They were indeed watching the Romans 
defeat army after army, city after city. People were fleeing the countryside to come into Jerusalem for protection. Josephus describes all of that. Jerusalem was loaded up with robbers and weapons. And they all fled into the city for protection. None of what Christ said about the days of Noah or the good man of the house in Matthew chapter 24 could possibly describe Titus's siege of Jerusalem. Therefore, you also be ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. All of this right here from, from this verse from verse 44, proves without a doubt that Christ is not talking about Jerusalem. Christ wants Jerusalem to be destroyed. He doesn't want them looking. He's warning Christians that they are going to be judged. He doesn't expect them to be in Jerusalem. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his whole household, to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find doing so. Did Titus sort out the people in Jerusalem? Oh, you're a good one. You were a good boy this year. We're going to save you. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now why, if the coming of the Son of Man was only for the destruction of Jerusalem and vengeance against his enemies, should Christians who had the sense not to be in Jerusalem, be worried about how they should be found when the Son of Man comes. Why would Paul warn the Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, and Philippians in this same manner? Paul of Tarsus, as well as the other apostles, taught the ever-imminent return of Christ because that was the exact teaching of Christ. Be ye also ready. For in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. Therefore we cannot imagine that when they saw Jerusalem encompassed with armies, as it was in 66 and then again in 70 AD, that by itself was the fulfillment of all the words of the prophets. Preterists are stupid. Paul did not have that understanding, and neither did the other apostles, because that is not at all what Christ had said. And we still await the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, along with the destruction of the enemies of our God and the real coming of the Son of Man. As we also said when making our Ephesians presentation, Many Christians miss the fact that in Scripture, there are different aspects of the judgment of God. While there is a final and great judgment day to look forward to, which is promised in many places in Scripture, 
there is also the ongoing judgment of God, which occurs on any and every day. This is often referred to in Scripture as the time of visitation. The ultimate salvation of the children of Yahweh cannot happen until the promised final judgment when all things are accomplished, but that is not until the times of the nations be fulfilled, since we still have nations. Just as we had nations when Christ had spoken those words, those days are not yet fulfilled. But as we see happening, all around us today, all of the nations of Israel are surrounded after the same model which we see prophesied for us in Revelation chapter 20, which is the scenario of the camp of the saints. Preterism fails because this very fact it cannot explain. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.